Hello, this is Lunar Poetry Podcast. I'm David Turner. Hello to our regular listeners and anyone that's tuning in for the first time. Today's episode is the last one to come out of the funding we received last summer from Arts Council England. A big thank you to them for their financial support over the last 12 months. I will incidentally be publishing a breakdown of what the funding was used for. You'll be able to find that over at our website from September, so if looking at spreadsheets and pie charts is something you're interested in, then go over to www.lunarpoetrypodcast.com where you can also download a transcript of this episode along with over 70 episodes from the archive. After today's episode, we'll be returning to uploading one per month. I'm in the process of applying for more funding from Arts Council England and depending on whether that's successful or not, then I'll be giving more details about what form the series will take as soon as possible. You can follow the progress of that application by following us at Lunar Poetry Podcast on Facebook and Instagram and at silent underscore tongue on Twitter. Though, regardless of the funding application, the series will continue, as will the transcripts. One final piece of news before I introduce the episode. The British Library have chosen to archive the entire series in their national audio collection. This is a pretty big project and will take a few months to process, but it won't affect the way you access these podcasts. I just wanted to mention it because the archiving of podcasts is still unusual. And if you lot hadn't continued to listen, I wouldn't have continued with the series. And I wouldn't be sitting on a series that contains over 200 poetic voices, many of them working class and or from marginalised parts of society. I've just made up that these voices will now be part of a national collection. So, today's episode. It was recorded in a space given over for free at the Albany Theatre in Deptford, South East London, by the literature organisation Spread the Word. They do fantastic work, you should check them out. Thank you in particular to Aaliyah and Laura for their help and advice there. We've spoken a lot in the last 12 months about access to the arts and literature and I thought this topic would be the perfect way to wrap up this current series, if you like. This discussion, Access to Publishing, is hosted by poet, artist, former Lunar guest and friend of mine, Karani Baraka, or Oka, as she likes to be known. Oka is joined by Raymond Andrews and Giles L. Turnbull and also Sandra Allen, who, along with Oka and Daniel Sluman, co-edited an anthology of poetry and essays by deaf and disabled writers called Stairs and Whispers, out through Nine Arches Press, to which Ray and Giles were both contributors. Taking Stairs and Whispers as a starting point, the quartet go on to discuss many of the barriers that writers from marginalised groups face when trying to get published. Talking from personal experience, the discussion aims to give an overview of some of the issues faced by writers all over the UK. This, of course, is a starting point for further discussion and not a final statement on any subject. And an hour or so is not enough time to cover everything and really to go into enough detail on each particular topic that came up in the discussion. If you have any feedback or would like to get involved in the discussion yourself, then please get in touch with us via social media and our guests will engage when they have time and energy. Oka, Sandra, Ray and Giles all have gigs coming up which I'd like to plug, but that would make this intro even more rambling than it has already become. I will, however, write a blog post listing all of this information which you can find 
over at www.lunapoetrypodcast.com. Alternatively, follow the link which I will post in the episode description. That's probably enough for now, isn't it? If you like what we do, then please support us by telling people word of mouth recommendations, either in person or via social media, really is the most effective form of advertising for us. Support the arts and literature. Again, thank you all for listening. I can't believe we now have over 100 episodes. I've really enjoyed doing this. Here's Oka, Sandra, Raymond and Giles. Uh, my name is Kairani Baroka. I go by Oka, you may call me that. A while ago, David and I had a conversation about interviewing some people we respected and admired about issues related to access to publishing. Who gets published? What are the barriers to getting published? How do people get published in different ways? And what impact that has on the form of the literature, the content? And so I have the pleasure today of interviewing three other associates. I will be asking all three of them about their experiences and opinions related to this. So first of all, elephant in the room. All four of us have worked on a book that we're all very proud of called Stairs and Whispers, Deaf and Disabled Poets Write Back, out with Nine Arches Press right now, go buy it. It was co-edited by myself, Sandra Allen, and Daniel Sluman and features 54 contributors, contributing essays, films, and of course, poetry. And it is the first of its kind, we think. It's probably the first major UK anthology of deaf and disabled poets, FUBU, Forest Bias. Uh, we're very proud of it, so go check it out. But this episode will not be specifically about that book. Although, of course, it will discuss issues that we have all written about and addressed in the book, whether directly or indirectly. First of all, I'm going to ask you to introduce yourselves in your own words, what work you've been doing, what work you've got going on, and why you're interested in doing this podcast in the first place, maybe. So maybe start with you, Sam. Ah, no time to think. <laughs> uh, hi, uh, I'm Sandra Allen. I also go by San. Um, I'm a writer, interdisciplinary artist, and curator. My work tends to focus on creatively accessible and intersectional arts and community organizing, um, examining the intersections of things like sexuality, disabled and deaf uh, cultures, gender, gender diversity, and variation, and then race and class. I write and sometimes read and perform um, poems and short stories. I also make short documentaries, usually focusing on deaf and disabled people, but not always, mostly focusing on artists. And I make a few poetry films as well, and also curate film programs, visual art shows, and cabarets. My name is Giles L. Turnbull. The L is important because if you can Google Giles Turnbull, there's another Giles Turnbull whose life seems to follow a bizarrely coincidental <laughs> route to mine. <laughs> so I use the L. <laughs> I've been blind for nine years now, so I've written poetry as both sighted person and blind person. My poetry doesn't often touch on the blindness, but I often write in prose about the experience of blindness on my poetry. Um, yeah, my name is Raymond Antrobus. I am a poet teacher and a person. <laughs> I was born deaf. Uh, my deafness has gotten progressively worse. I don't want to use, use the word worse, but it, yeah, I have to do hearing tests every six months to ensure this where it's at. I've only recently started writing about that in the, a similar way to what 
Giles just said about like that not always being at the forefront of what is being written about. I'm really excited about this conversation because I don't think I've ever sat in a room where there's so much, as uh, San used the word, intersectionality. Yeah. There's so much intersection here in terms of disability, but also experience. And yes, I should mention that I myself identify, have been identifying for the past six years as a disabled woman lady, woman, <laughs> as a disabled woman. Um, uh, I'm Indonesian and it was, it was only until I came to the UK that I actually got proper medication and accessibility for a lot of things. So this is all new and wonderful to me. Mm. Um, means I get to meet people like you. But yeah, writing about a past that does not involve access to what I do now, publishing in the arts, is something that I'm continually grappling with as well in a, doing a PhD at Goldsmith sort of about that. So without further ado, let's, let's get into it. Um, at first, I would like to sort of quote a few statistics from our friend Dave Coates. He runs the poetry review blog, Dave Poems. It's davepoems.wordpress.com. And he's really done amazing work researching from January 2013 to July 2017, four years worth of reviews from The Guardian, for one, and then, and then so many other um, insights that he, he's gotten his data set from you know, eight platforms of poetry. With this data set, he's discovered that articles written by people of color are extremely underrepresented in terms of overall articles. Only 4.3% of all articles written about poetry books were written by people of color, a total of 44. The proportion of books by poets of color reviewed is 8.1% of all books, which is still pretty shocking. The proportion of female critics or women critics that he that he's recorded is 41.5%, a much lower percentage for particular platforms. And likewise, the proportion of books by, female po by women poets that have been reviewed is 38.6%. Women critics review men and women almost evenly, but male critics will, unsurprisingly, <laughs> gotta say, overwhelmingly review other men. Do better dudes. <laughs> you know, all of this, as he says, should remind us of just how homogeneous this community has been. Which, for people outside poetry, they may not know that the poetry scene is still quite homogenous. And so I think this conversation is important because we're talking about what are the factors that lead to that and what is changing right now? What can we do to make publishing, particularly for poetry, more inclusive and accessible? So not just talking about disabled and deaf experiences, but also across gender lines. I mean, there isn't data here for, you know, non-binary poets, I think Dave has acknowledged, and for, for disabled and, and deaf poets. But I'd like to hear your thoughts if you would like to go one by one and say something about what access and inclusion and publishing mean to you. So I think I'd like to start with Sandra. When I was thinking about what access is, um, it can be so many things, but can include reducing and ideally removing barriers, but physical and mental barriers, social barriers, and that includes monetary and governmental barriers. I think we often don't talk about those as much. And linguistic and or communication barriers to participation in all facets of life. And then for inclusion, for me kind of leads on from that. I always like to think of it as leaving no one behind. So thinking about and acting upon how to make something possible for as many people 
as possible, um, ideally everyone. Also within that destabilizing power structures so that the same privileged narratives aren't happening again and again and again. And then in publishing, because I thought it was interesting that you asked what, like, what is publishing, so I started to think about that as well, like things like books, journals, magazines, um, zines, chat books, online things including blogs and all of that. I also started to think about publishing as including grant applications, applications to agents and awards, because these things often have such a huge impact on whether or not someone actually gets published in a book form, whether they've had access to those things as well, so they're sort of offshoots of publishing. That's right. There, we're going to come back to so <laughs> many things that you just said. I'm so excited that we're getting right into the meat of things, um, especially I think maybe people listening would like more clarification on the linguistic barriers that maybe are evident to us, but might not be evident to some listeners. Giles, if you'd like to yeah. share. I always think inclusion is probably the most important thing. It happens on both fronts. You've got to encourage publishers to publish more of the, the less published writers, but you've also get it, got to get more writers in those areas believing that they can publish mm-hmm. because I, became first aware of this when I looked at contemporary blind poets and I googled it and I found out about Homer and Milton (laughs) and I thought Uh is that it? Uh (laughs) I'm happy to say that my name now appears on a google search like that but there's got to be more than that out there and I think there must be work needed because I'm sure that people are, blind people are writing poetry out there, they need to know that, that the route to publication is possible, you know, they can do this, it's not it shouldn't be some sort of barrier that they're going to run up against. Working on both ends of the of the attack at the same time, the publishers and the writers, is yeah. is important. Thank you, Ray. Mm, I mean, for me, um, one of the things that has kept me going as a poet for so long is I generally had this belief that there was nothing else I could do, and I started more as a performer. Uh, I wasn't interested in publishing anything because that's just not what I saw, something that was available to me. I would write my stuff, I would learn it, and then I'll be in front of an audience. And the, the powerful thing about that for me was because I was deaf and because I had so many different challenges and my confidence was really low in talking to other people. I'd lost almost every job I'd had from the ages of 16 to 20 um, because of my deafness. And so it was, it's kind of like, if I'm going to survive, I have to be a good poet and I have to be able to communicate with people. But it's interesting now I'm at this point where, you know, I am publishing books, I am teaching, I am engaging with so many other people, but it's been, it's been a journey. And I do feel like I wouldn't have had to have gone through as much had I seen more examples of deaf poets and more access, which is what we're here to talk about. I hope that makes sense. Yeah, no, it does. Yeah. And um, I don't know about you, but that really resonated with a lot of my experiences too. Like not seeing examples out there, low confidence, um, misunderstandings, jobs. So in terms of what Sandra was talking about, linguistic challenges to publishing, I'm really interested in hearing from all three of you about how you finally broke through to a point where you felt like the way you wrote was validated in, in a poetry world that is still largely homogenous and has been. Um, and I'd like to start with Giles in particular because you and I spoke earlier about how you have written as both a sighted writer and a blind writer, and but only um, became published as a blind writer. And I thought that was fascinating, and I'd love for you to speak more about yeah, that. Yeah, sure. 
I've been writing poetry since my high school days, which is going on for about 27 years now. For the most part, I was doing it for my own enjoyment. You know, I did it as a way of relaxing after a busy day at work. But as my sight failed and I had more time and had developed more confidence in my poetry, I decided I wanted to, to actually get it out there and try and get it some publications. So yeah, it's been about five years since I've been published anywhere. It's different. I mean, I, I can't comment on what it was like getting published as a sighted writer because I, I never was. I guess I can, I can imagine what it would have been. I know what dif difficulties I face now that I wouldn't have faced if I was doing it sighted. Technology is usually the, the demon in this conversation. <laughs> a lot of websites are not designed with good accessibility in mind. The, the easiest example is those random word capture images that vali validate that you are human. Mm. And if, oh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> how on earth can I read that? You know, there isn't any kind of screen capture that will convert it into text for me. There used to be a Twitter app and I cannot even remember its name anymore. You could connect to it and say, I've got this capture challenge take a screenshot of it and then a human operator on the other end of the direct message would send the capture code back to you in text that you could paste into the box and that was absolutely fantastic but that's been gone for about probably five years now oh, no. yeah. Back, yeah so i mean there are alternatives there's a website called capture be gone which i've never tried but um, <laughs> a lot of places these days you will often see get an audio image and it will read out a set of numbers that you have to listen to and type them in as you hear them. And they are manageable, much easier than the mixed up sort of slightly scrambled words that a sighted person has to deal with. So I approve of that, but I don't know if it really benefits the publisher or whether it really lowers the amount of spam they get. But it's difficult, you know, if the website's not designed right. That's the most obvious example, but you know, if they're not easy to navigate, it can take a very long time to read a whole page of a website to find the information you want. If they've used headings correctly, then that makes it easy for a blind person to jump. The screen reader will help you navigate from heading to heading, so you can find the heading you want with the submission information. But if there isn't, you have to listen to the whole page. <laughs> and you know, it's hard work, so mm -hmm. yeah. Thank you yeah. for sharing that, Ray. I mean, you were speaking about the challenges of going into poetry and not really thinking about publishing. Mm. And I thought that was super, super interesting. I mean, what caused the shift? And do you feel a lot more comfortable now that you're, you know, you're in poetry review, <laughs> that you know that your work is validated? Like, what was that shift? I think the shift was looking wider at the kind of poet I, I think the kind of poet I wanted to be changed because I was very much in the first few years about slam and about live poetry and I feel I felt passionately about that space because again it was something I had or I could kind of claim an ownership over without too many concerns and I think I looked at the publishing world because I did have poetry books on my shelf from growing up and everything but that always just seemed like a, another world and so I guess that shift might have been when I started seeing other poets who were also slamming I started touring I went around Germany and Switzerland and like that that side of Europe 
and I notice how many poets I was seeing who are uh, respected slam performance poets but also had books. I need, needed to see those examples and I think that planted something with me. And then, funnily enough, just as I, I, was, I was coming back, Burning Eye started. Mm-hmm. And uh, Clive from Burning Eye said, publishing house. Yeah, asked me, and no one's ever asked me before, do you have anything that we could publish? And I just so happened to have been working on these. It was like the timing was just gold. And so I gave him what I had and they published it and it became a book called Shapes and Disfigurements of Raymond Antrobos. And I'm still really proud of that book just for how so many things came together, including the design, the front cover of the book was designed by uh, a man who'd seen me read poems, said he enjoyed them so much that he wanted to give something back of his own creation and, and ended up making this cover. So it's just like organic collaboration. Now I'm passionate about making sure that other people who have other different kinds of challenges, including deafness, feel like they can submit, feel like they can become published poets as well as performance poets. We're going to come back to that because I think encouraging other poets and creating more of an inclusive community is something that's common to all of us and I want to talk about different strategies for that later on. But Sandra, you know, you've worked for years on multimedia interactive intersectional experiences. There's so much that that I want to ask you about challenges to inclusion in publishing, both with your work and I know a lot of your work is collaborative as Mm -hmm. well. I want to specifically ask about that. I'll add a bit to what Giles was saying about barriers in terms of forums and online stuff because I also use voice-activated software, Dragon Naturally Speaking, which I collaborate with, although that's not the kind of collaboration you were talking about, I don't think. But yeah, and it doesn't work with a lot of online forums as well. I think there's been a lot of problems with things like Submittable for a lot of different programs and apps and not working, and then grants and awards. A lot of this is all online now and the autofill forms are not great and they don't work with everything. But it's also the like the socioeconomic barriers there. Assuming that everyone is online in the first place mm-hmm. um, is a really huge thing because mm-hmm. there's so many people who aren't. Like at my local library in Glasgow, there's a queue to use the computers still. You know, like people don't have that kind of access. So thinking about that as well. In terms of collaborations, coming back to linguistic barriers, I've worked with a lot of deaf BSL users and there's hardly ever call-outs for magazines and that in BSL, um, there's no information. There's also not audio information for people who are blind or visually impaired because not everyone is able to use the assistive technology or magnifying glasses or whatever. So thinking about these different ways of getting into things in terms of collaboration, it's like ensuring that there are interpreters um, so that people can have proper conversations <laughs> about Godless things. interpreters. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. and that sort of thing as well. Um, but also easy English, like English that's accessible to, to people with learning disabilities. Yeah, that kind of thing is really important, I think. I want to sort of speak specifically about the process of submitting to, I mean, you know, Raymond, you had that wonderful coincidence and, you know, kismet of Burning Eye approaching you directly. Um, we've been working with Nine Arches and Jane, who's open to these things. I would like to ask specifically about whether you think publishers are conveying themselves as accessible and inclusive. Sandra's <laughs> about to burst out laughing because because the, the process of, of submitting, I know you talked yeah. about submittable, etc. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I want to speak about how 
publishers, for example, one thing that you know you wrote about in Stairs and Whispers, Sandra, is this need to tour. And mm-hmm. I, I started out in performance as well, mm-hmm. but it was really hard. <laughs> and I, I kept doing it because of this expectation, mm-hmm. this is what poets do, mm-hmm. rather than like, how can I protect myself and do this better? Mm-hmm. Um, and I want to know if those conversations you think are happening more and more with publishers. I think, okay, if I may add one more thing, I would like to see more people in positions of power in publishing who come from different backgrounds. And I want us not to only be submitters and the poets. I want us to be publishers. That hierarchy needs to be more inclusive, I think. So are we still completely outsiders to some extent? Like, are are publishers stating they're more amenable to quote-unquote diversity? I hate that word, but, you know, (laughs) and getting people from more socioeconomic backgrounds different racial backgrounds in? Uh, I, I would have to say no. <laughs> I'm sorry. Like I, I just, I mean, I think people who, I think people who are from the backgrounds that are being included in the term diversity are often doing this work, but I don't think other people really are. There's like amazing deaf and disabled publications, um, Deaf Poets Society, mm-hmm. you know, that are doing things that are completely accessible. Like they've they're so amazing. Like everything they do has audio. You yeah, know, yeah. they've got they've got it all covered. We ensured there was a lot of access on this book, but that was from us working towards it. Like people aren't just doing this. I think a lot of the time. I think you know people are trying to be more open-minded about including more kinds of people perhaps but they're still not doing the work to to find the people mm-hmm. and to make themselves accessible to people in general I mean mm-hmm. there are exceptions of course but overall things are still kind of bland I think yeah. to be yeah. honest just this week I found out a friend of mine Sophie really who is a full deaf playwright poet she's just won mentorship with Penguin Random House which is an example of, you know, like you say, there's some examples in, in the wider scheme of things, lots of issues, but there's some things. Even speaking for myself, like I'm, I'm editing uh, the next issue of Magma. That's been really interesting to be on that side of the table and to be someone who's asking for submissions and <laughs> being someone reading those submissions <laughs> and curating that space with everything that we're talking about around this table in mind. That's been interesting, yeah. So you're co-editing it with Lisa Kelly, Mm -hmm. and both of you are also in Stairs and Whispers, Mm -hmm. which is wonderful. I think the different editorial approach of allowing non-deaf people to write about deafness is something that is really interesting, and I wanted to ask you about it. Different to how Sandra, Daniel, and I curated Stairs and Whispers. Mm -hmm. We wanted it very much only deaf and disabled Mm -hmm. poets writing about anything, really. Can you talk a bit about how you came to that decision with Lisa? That was tricky. And I think the way in which the compromise with this issue is, like you say, even with Stairs and Whispers, it's the first. It's the first time I've ever done this. So it's the start of something. I can tell you that 22 of those poets are deaf that have been published and also first-time publications. Wow. 22. Out of how many? I'm not sure if I can disclose exactly how many. It was also very difficult dealing with rejecting a good number of poems, of writing, of material, which was credible and was important, but didn't, I guess, live up to the standard of the publication or the standard that they were looking for. Yeah, Ray's um, using air quote ha- fingers. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> for standard. I mean, yeah, like I say, it was it was, it was challenging. I'm I'm proud of what we've done, but it's 
But what was really important for me, and I said this going in on this project, is that this cannot be a one-off thing. Going forward, yeah. this needs to be a landmark in the way in which access is granted by this one issue changes the landscape from here on. I mean, it's ambitious. Like you said, we couldn't take on the entire crusade, as it were. It had to be like, I'm going to do what I can with this one thing and begin a conversation or begin an exploration. I think that's all any person could be expected to do, right? Doing, even if you think it's a small thing, I mean, it, it's quite impactful, actually, and just to do it with heart and to do it properly is difficult, but hopefully it will multiply. Just seeing how other people are awoken to, oh, an anthology can be multimedia. Oh, there mm -hmm. are so many deaf and disabled poets writing. Oh, there are trans people writing, LGBTQ people writing, there are, you know, mm -hmm. a black, Asian, minority, ethnic poets writing. It's funny that people seem to think we don't exist unless something like this mm -hmm. comes out and shows actually there are so many of us and we have always existed. Giles, I mean, when you, when you submit, do you feel like they're friendly and open to the idea of a you know that you're a blind writer conveying what you know yeah. your art and b that it's not a charity thing to yeah. to accept you, you, like the poetry has to be high standard that's something that is true and maybe it's a reflection on the type of magazines i submit to but i probably 95 percent of the time feel that the editors are very very approachable I have had some experience that they're not, but most of the time, if I'm having trouble with submitting something, they'll work around it with me. The bigger problem I have, well, it's not a problem, but obviously I can't read a printed copy, and what's the, probably the number one guidance thing that editors want is that you've read a copy of their magazine. <laughs> now, now, <laughs> now, and I like to do that, but that means that I have to ask them, can I get an electronic format, ideally PDF, because then my screen reader can read it aloud. And yeah, I know it does sometimes feel like I'm kind of writing begging letters anytime I want to, to submit something somewhere, but I'm, I'm comfortable with that, that's the only way you can do it. I would like to encourage publishers to, to think about that and make their publications available in electronic formats. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of concerns about piracy, same way that there was about MP3 files in the early days of file sharing with mm -hmm. bands on the, the Napster website and things like that. And publishers do still say they are aware of PDF copies of their books being shared without being purchased. You know, that is trouble and I want to kind of explore that and talk to publishers about ways around that because it is important because without that, there's no way that I can read their magazines. But as I say, probably 95% of publishers, maybe even more, are happy and very quickly prepare a PDF copy. Mo I mean, most of the publication process goes through PDF stage before it goes to print. Yeah. So it's no, no big hassle for most That's publishers. True, yeah. But um, they're always really 
happy to work as best they can. That's so true. I think also, most of the, oh, sorry, no. Uh, just that I was thinking that a lot of like when people pass things around for free though too it's it's often people who wouldn't be able to buy something or wouldn't buy it anyway so I don't think mm. there's necessarily this loss of sales that everyone feels a bit rabid about and it's actually in some ways really good for a book to be passed along in that way mm. like it's the way a lot of like indie musicians became known yeah, was people yeah. passing things along and saying hey listen to this hey read this you yeah. know and mm. it can only help the publication actually mm. <laughs> in the yeah. end yeah. unless like everyone's reading it for free which isn't the case I mean a lot of people yeah. still want a hard copy book yeah. a lot of people want a designed you know e-reader kind of e-book yeah. they don't want a PDF like yeah. I don't think it's going to be an overwhelming yeah. thing that happens and it's like the heal whole ethos of public libraries which is sadly yeah. being declined <laughs> exactly oh, you can always yes. read it for free there save libraries yes yeah. absolutely yeah. yeah so another thing that I wanted to bring up is higher education and its connection to publishing and the poetry world. I know Ray, you went to Goldsmiths, I'm doing PhD at Goldsmiths, got my master's from NYU. All not possible without scholarships, right? But that the availability of stuff like that, I want to speak to, and, and also whether there's a sort of elitism in, in requiring higher education, you know, what divides and what benefits poetry and higher education has for inclusion and access. Actually, I've just realised that what you just said, you asked me earlier about when did I first feel I was able to publish something, like submit to a magazine specifically, and I'd never considered it until Jack Underwood, who was my dissertation advisor, I just seen, he just read some of my poetry and said, hey, uh, you, have you heard of the Rialto? I'm like, no. He's like, I'm going to submit. He did it for me. He submitted. Wow. There he is. There's a picture of him in this room. Yeah, so funny. Enough, <laughs> that guy on the wall Jack Underwood. took my poems and submitted them to the Rialto for me. Wow. And they were all rejected. And then he just said, oh, don't worry. I could like, paste the wall with all my rejection slips. Try again. The second time I did it, they actually wrote back a note. They rejected it as well. But they said, this is interesting, there's something here. Third time I submitted, I got in. But it was being coached into it and the fact that I was coached into it, I guess, you know, from within an institution, I think, academia, I think that there is something to say to that because I often felt like, again, those spaces weren't for me until I found myself kind of in them but kind of through the back door as well. <laughs> even my route into the Goldsmith University, I didn't even get any GCSEs. I had to do a whole heap of interviews and written interviews as well to get in, to kind of make a case that, look, I am capable of doing this work at this level. But yeah, it's something that I've, I've wrestled with a lot because I feel like I've been, I'm someone who's been very proud of my autodidacticism. Mm -hmm. And I felt like I'd be giving that up, going into an academic space. But now I've gone through it, I, I am so glad I did. Because mm -hmm. it challenged so many ideas I had and myths and narratives I had about, yeah, where I belong, where my work belongs. You know, I, I feel like I've only benefited from it. That's wonderful. Giles, right before this podcast began, we spoke a bit about your potentially applying to an MA program and, and your decision to, to try and go for that. I've never really formally studied poetry. I mean, I've been writing it for over 25 years now and it's going quite nicely. So <laughs> I don't really need an MA to to boost it. But I, yeah. I, I mean, no doubt that studying, spending a year working on it 
would make an impact on my poetry. It would change a little bit how I write and give me sort of broader ideas to write about. But there are two other aspects. Everybody always says there's no... Poetry isn't a paid job, you know, you, you cannot survive. You can be a librarian, you can be an accountant, um, but you can't really make money from your poetry. And that is very true. And I would hope that if I studied a master course, it would open a few more doors into publishing kind of roles that I would not really have much chance with without it. And the third angle to that consideration is my blindness. My big weakness at the moment is my independent mobility. And I used to be a lot more mobile when I first lost my sight, albeit with slightly more sight than I have now. And I want to regain that. And I think that living on a university campus, getting out of my room and having to get to classes every day and to the library and interacting socially with other people would be a huge impact in my life. Mm. So it feels like on three three strands, it's a, it's a really good thing for me to think about for this sort of coming academic year. My good luck. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I think it's a difficult, <laughs> difficult question. I mean, there's the socioeconomic barriers. There's people who, you know, cannot afford to go to university and there's not enough scholarships to go around. Um, and, you know, coming out with debts of 40 grand these days and that sort of thing. It's just, it's an awful lot to put into something <laughs> like poetry. Um, and as well, like um, you mentioned, you know, barriers in terms of getting around and that sort of thing. Like um, for a lot of uh, trans people, non-binary, people there's a lot of research being done that people are dropping out of university or not going because of the social barriers to to studying and that sort of thing and so I can you speak a little more about the so those social barriers? Well, like if someone um, decides to transition, for example, mm. um, and they have to deal with, you know, basically prejudice <laughs> around them um, mm. and ch changing a lot of things um, officially, um, or if they're a trans person but nobody knows they're a trans person but they have to show documentation that says something different than their name and, and their gender that's on the documentation and these kinds of things. and. Universities are becoming like gatekeepers now, and this comes into things to do with race as well and, and nationality. Like they're checking that people have the right to be here. They're checking people's genders. They're checking like all kinds of things that are you know quite problematic and and interfere with people being able to study. Like the mental health impacts of that are huge, and yeah, also the economic barriers to it. I think in terms of poetry being studied, it's great. It's great to see a lot more people feeling that they belong in that canon as well, which is incredible. I do think with some creative writing programs, although maybe it's more on the undergrad level, there's a tendency towards sameness mm -hmm. that's a bit mm -hmm. problematic. Yeah. <laughs> like there's a kind yeah. of like churning yeah. out a kind a kind yeah. of poetry yeah. that is kind of you can just go, oh yeah, that's the program you studied yeah. in or whatever. Yeah. Go go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. No, 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 no. Yeah. I, I mean I'm totally what See kind of sameness, though? Yeah. I mean, for our listeners. Well, it depends on where they've studied, I think, as well. But a lot of the time, you know, people are writing to please their professors, yeah. right? They're writing yeah. to please a specific person, maybe mm. just one person or several, and in a specific way that they think is the it way, um, mm. or that university thinks the it way. I've seen the same thing with like acting courses and things like that. They produce a certain kind of, mm. and you're not maybe getting that um, raw writing mm. that happens with people who haven't 
been formed in the yeah. same way. And I, I, I would say that that's not exclusive to academia. That's no. just general. That's true. Like, there's a scene I mean? as well. You scene, can end up right? with that. Absolutely. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's true. I, yeah, I mean, I also think it, what is exclusive to the academia is that, and that sameness is still the required reading list mm -hmm. of the poets yeah. is the yeah is it's the, white really it's like really <laughs> what is Stevens again really yeah, yeah. Again? really <laughs> it's like john berryman yeah sure and i'm not saying that those poets don't have anything to offer but it's like mm -hmm. when it's all yeah. it's exclusively yeah. that yeah, that white male canon the, white like, straight yeah yeah, yeah, yeah that, and that's yeah. not changing that's what's interesting to me that's not changing and how often do you see yeah you see milton taught maybe but otherwise yeah, well, <laughs> not but, like you know you don't see nula watts on on uh, reading lists yet right. although yeah. we'll shout have out to, yeah shout <laughs> out to nula watt who yeah. is a, a, a blind, blind poet, poet who I, has I, cerebral palsy oh, yeah, yeah. i reviewed her pamphlet uh, a little while ago for the Sphinx website. Oh, fantastic. Yes, yeah. and she's also a Stairs yeah. and Whispers contributor. Yeah. This is a secret marketing pilot <laughs> Stairs and Whispers, by the way. Yeah. We, just, yeah. we just love our poets so much. Yeah. Yeah, and she has a fantastic response to Milton's mm. sonnet on, mm -hmm. on partial blindness. On yeah. partial blindness. Yeah. And um, yeah, this is the way people do get studied, though, is through masters when people yeah. choose what they, they study. And yeah. so that is interesting to have people yeah. going, like, like yourselves, going into um, that kind of higher education because then you have different projects coming out than yeah. what Absolutely. would have normally and been. Even that gender term masters and also yeah. of course the <laughs> racial connotations yeah, of right, masters right, yeah. <laughs> right. I mean, um, can i just can i just give like one kind of subversive thing that happened to me go, about go. when we were talking about sameness in academia because this is something right. i was very vocal about in goldsmiths at goldsmiths and and it was met it was welcomed those challenges were, were, were welcomed and in fact one of my papers i did a whole paper on frank o'hara and I chose Frank O'Hara because, you know, everyone loves bloody Frank O'Hara. And I'm not even saying that he's not a great poet. He is a great poet. But this dissertation I wrote about Frank O'Hara was basically looking at how his poetics are different to mine, even though we both live in a city. So it's about like the poetics Ooh. of the city. Yeah. But the way in which it got, it was actually my lowest graded paper of everything oh. I did at Goldsmiths but in a very interesting way, in a way that was helpful, because the conclusion was, Raymond, Frank O'Hara is bad for you. <laughs> Frank O'Hara is the equivalent of having cheese in your diet when you're lactose intolerant. <laughs> because the poems you're writing that are directly in conversation with Frank O'Hara are your weakest poems. That was an actual, like, uh, no, that was great. Yeah, I was yeah. like, wow, there's such thing as a, as a bad influence, as a, as a kind of reading that is bad for me. Oh God, and it came from Ahara. Nice. And I still, I still read Ahara. Like, there's a lot of poets that I read for pleasure, but they don't influence me. I think it's a different thing. I, right? yeah, I yeah. enjoy them, but That's they don't make me feel like writing. Yeah, huh. absolutely. Wow. Yeah, no, there's so many. I mean, just recently, just, I was in a panel where, again, it was the canon, the UK canon was like white, straight, men and not acknowledging the fact that when you're talking about the UK you have to talk about empire and you have to talk about right. writing that comes from the colonies and, and writing right. in places that weren't UK colonies but were influenced by English and it's this whole thing of how marginal or how influential do you want to keep people who are scholar activists, scholar artists who are you know women of color, um, LGBTQI to not be niche in a university, to really influence what is going on. I mean, the number of women of color professors in the UK, shockingly tiny. Mm -hmm. And um, I feel like 
seeking out those women in my life or those people who, whose experiences resonate with me has been way more difficult than mm. I thought it would be. So I think it, it also rests on the universities themselves to empower mm-hmm. people in higher education who are bringing an interesting mm-hmm. reading list, interesting quote unquote, you know, reading list that speak to them. In high schools also, you know, I mean, we're not just talking about, you know, we're talking about the whole mm-hmm. education system. And going al- along with earlier, Sandra, you briefly mentioned nationality. Uh, one thing I want to cover briefly is, you know, the Eric Gregory Award for Poets mm-hmm. 30 and Under, I believe. Mm-hmm. Is yes. it under yeah. 30 or 30, yeah. 30 and Under? 30 and Under, yeah. 30 and Under. Um, it was recently opened to poets of all nationalities. And I know mm-hmm. myself and a few other people were like, ah, because we're not British. <laughs> we and missed it, We yeah. missed it because mm-hmm. we're... You know, Just, yeah. we're we're heading the best decade of our lives, <laughs> uh, but we are in our thirties now, mm. and uh, I thought that was a real mm. landmark in terms of oh maybe things are changing, but it seems like too some late of for us. Say, yeah, some, <laughs> yeah, too late for us. No, but I think some of what you're saying is like it's actually not changing, not changing quickly enough. But what do you say about? you know, developments like that where things are being opened up to yeah. more nationalities? Well, it's it's a bit different in Scotland. Like, things tend to be, um, even like when we voted or didn't vote <laughs> for independence, um, it was based on residency yeah. as opposed to nationality. Right. Um, and not everything is that way. The Edward and Morgan Poetry Award, which is sort of similar, yeah. it's under 30, is a, is a similar one. Um, but they say, you know, you have to be born in Scotland, and or raised in Scotland and or a resident for two years or something like that. So you can just be living there and I think that makes a huge difference and you don't have to be been living there for a long period of time. But on the same hand I kind of looked at the list of people who've been nominated and most of them tended to be people who were born and raised in Scotland and um, the last two times they've done it like you know they seem to be all white faces and so like you know, you can change your rules, but it takes a while before I think things start to filter through and people have to see themselves or not necessarily um, actually see themselves, <laughs> but you know, people have to feel represented and in order to like feel that they have a chance. And I think if you don't see, you know, if you don't have um, black faces up there, if you don't yeah. see that um, trans women of color are getting awards or being nominated for awards, then you're going to be like, well, should I submit? What's the point? Because it's going to be the same people. I think that's yeah. something that can be improved from, you know, a lot of different levels of, yeah, just trying to make people feel welcome. Yeah. And but then yeah. that's the thing, though, because even when you do get in, you then like yeah. questioning, like, wait, are they? Is this? Yeah, is this a diversity moment? Diversity. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I yeah. Come for diversity uh, higher uh-huh, because uh-huh. Um, I don't know about you, but I have actually been approached by editors saying, hey, would you like to submit? We're trying to diversify. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, I get that quite a bit, yeah. you know, and, yeah. and it's like, oh, I'm so flattered. At the same time, is that is the only reason why you're approaching me yeah. is because I'm a disabled brown woman, you know, <laughs> or is it because of the quality? And I think when you when editors approach people, I think it's very important also for editors and publishers to think about, okay, what is the intention here? And why am I approaching this person? Have I read their work? Do I understand where they're coming from? Do I respect their work and admire their work? Mm -hmm. Because that needs to be, you know, the the main thing I think is for the work to be recognized as quality, Mm. even if it doesn't fit certain award judges. Absolutely. Quality. Um, I think there's something that our our silent host, David Turner, mentioned earlier, our quietly silent (laughs) godfather host, David Turner, mentioned in an early conversation with me is, the concept, this concept of nature writing, right, and and awards that sort of privilege this bucolic pastoral mm. type of poetry, and that's re- and its relationship to race and class. 
I thought was really fascinating. I mean, when you read award winners, do you think there's also this sort of emotional labor that needs mm -hmm. to happen where you think, okay, I'm going to try and burst through, and I think my, my poetry is worth it. It comes down to self-confidence as well. I want to speak about this concept of responsibility because as you have said, the people doing this work to increase inclusion and access are largely from marginalized communities themselves, yeah. <laughs> right? And we would much prefer to be writing. I mean, I can only speak yeah. to myself, like, yeah. for myself. Mm -hmm. We would much yeah. prefer to be writing and editing yeah. our own work. And, and of course, like, editing is fantastic and, you know, representation work is important. But it always seems to fall to marginalized groups mm -hmm. to do this. And I struggle with this because I don't necessarily want to encourage, let's say, students of mine to be like, okay, you also have to do the work of yeah. opening the road for other people. Like, I think that's important, but I also worry about the emotional labor that we're expecting of young poets. And then why aren't, you know, why aren't people in the main, quote-unquote, mainstream, you know, doing more of this work? I mean, I guess my question is, do you see that as a, as a burden? It's a huge what burden. I mean, I think it's a huge burden. I mean, yeah. it's not a burden because I love to do things for my communities, you know, like that. But it's a huge burden. I mean, for every event that I do, I end up, you know, doing the audio description, doing the subtitles myself, doing the, you know, all this stuff other people should be paying for. And usually they're, you know, funded organizations, funded publishers, this kind of thing. And what I find happens is that when they do actually get somebody who says, hey, we'll cover all of the access for you, they're only doing it for our event, for a deaf and disabled event. Yes. They don't keep doing it for other events. Right, <laughs> right. So it's just like so, so firmly right now. Yeah. And yes. it's just sort of like, oh, we've done this thing. We've done our deaf and disabled moment. Um, we had the BSL interpreter. We got the photo op. And then they move on and never do it again. Yeah. And I find that really frustrating. And that puts the burden back on us again, because if the next time I do an event, well, then I'm going to have to pay for it or I'm going to have right. to do so it. So much right? goes on behind the scenes yeah. that disabled and deaf people don't necessarily even take credit for because yeah. we, we have to ask, okay, is this place accessible? Is the event going to be accessible? How far do I have to walk together? You know, like all of these things. Invisible labor or, mm -hmm. you know, to use invisible, I hate using the word invisible because, you know, obvious yeah. reasons, but um, labor that's just not recognized. Ray, you wrote something down. I know you have something to say. Oh, wow. My response to that is yes. But I'm going to say how I've managed to strategize this for myself so it's useful. I have a little bit of a manifesto, which is for myself, which is when I go into a project, including something like a magma, including working with deaf young people, trying to get them to become published poets, all this kind of thing. I'm very clear of what it is I want to get out of those experiences. And I write them down and I try and just focus on that. And I think, okay, you're going to get asked to do extra work. You're going to, you, someone might see you and you might, you know, suddenly your wires are getting crossed and you're overwhelmed. You, okay, use the word emo, emotional labor. Mm. As, as, as so much, so much of that work is yeah. giving, yeah. giving, giving. And yeah. I constantly found myself coming to the end of so many of these different projects with nothing to give myself. Mm -hmm. And I need to like, <laughs> oh, you know, God, we, yeah. we all, we all, we all know that. Yeah. We all know that, right? <laughs> and it's like, yeah, and you're right. It's like, damn, I could have written another book. That emotional labor could yeah. have gone into our own work. That's Absolutely. that's that's a that's a real thing. Oh man. Um, so <laughs> oh, like now I'm at this point now oh, after X amount of time is like yeah I I I'm very clear about what it is I'm gonna get out of this project, how long it's gonna last, and what I'm gonna do afterwards. That's something I didn't have in place before. 
you know, because I do think that we can only care for others if we care for ourselves. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Self-care is so important and it's so difficult in these contexts. I mean, it's, it is so much giving. I think um, the messages about writers from marginalised groups almost certainly is going to start with the people in those marginalised groups. I think what needs to be done is that the non-marginalised groups actually listen to those messages and share them so it becomes more widespread. Mm. I think that's one of the biggest things I'm grateful for being blind is that I'm much more aware of what's going on in other marginalised communities. I've written poems um, responding to deaf painters and I've spoken to the painters about them. I noticed the other day there was a tweet about Pride Week and I've forgotten who, who posted it but there were about four or five LGBTQI poets collections and I downloaded as many books as I could find about them and I'm going to work my way through them and and I shared that and you know that's kind of what you need to do it's not my community but you know I want to read that kind of work and I want other people to want to read that kind of work so I am happy to spend that time doing that you know if somebody wants me to write about blindness I'll pretty much do it at the drop of a hat. <laughs> maybe at the moment I'm not overloaded with those requests and maybe it isn't constricting my time. But, you know, I give it my priority, really. Yeah, <laughs> you know, because I, I think it's important that the world realises that we all need to be more aware of other people's troubles. With the magma call-out, I... Um, <laughs> yeah, there was this thing that kicked off in, on Facebook with... Uh, with a, a bunch of American poets about the deaf issue call out. And what this discussion on Facebook was, was actually among mm, a few blind poets who said that they refuse uh, the idea of blindness as a metaphor. And they were saying yeah. they felt that deaf poets should refuse the idea of deafness as metaphor. Yeah. And I understood what they were yeah. saying I thought the policing of those ideas of what metaphors, you know, are valid was strange. But it's interesting that you've said that you would write about blindness at a drop of a hat. Yeah, well, that's interesting (laughs) (laughs) because I did actually send in about four poems for that Magna theme, so none of them were accepted. Space. Space. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. But, I mean, yeah. no, no, that's not my point. <laughs> my point was that I did, I did like that the magma theme was open to use of deafness as metaphor. Because yeah. really? I wrote Ooh. a poem about the unwillingness to listen, which was what one of the um, themes that was yeah. suggested in the yeah. magma page. Mm. And I wrote a poem touching on blindness. Blindness and deafness have quite a close relationship. When the house is very noisy, when I'm at home, I, I wrote a poem about being doubly blind because I cannot listen to the screen reader when the house is noisy. So I'm kind of, I'm, I'm doubly inflicted by blindness <laughs> because I cannot hear what the screen reader is saying. So I, I think it's great that the magma theme was open to all and I, I am not upset to be rejected. Magma is fiercely difficult to get into. This, that was my fourth attempt and I'm still not successful, so I'll keep trying. This is also a mini confront your editors. <laughs> but, so I think what's important to acknowledge though too though is that like there's such a long history of blindness specifically being yeah. used as a metaphor. Yeah. Like, in a negative and, way. Yeah, yeah. And, and in a positive way, but just 
blind people existing in other people's poems or books or whatever as metaphors or an entire about. book by Jose yeah. Saramago for example oh my gosh. being even yeah. just the amount of submissions you get in any publication where people will say I was blinded by blah blah and you're like really <laughs> it gets it gets kind of boring or even as well as being offensive. unheard voices <laughs> you know? and invisible voices the yeah. voices of the voiceless yeah. really gets my goat so yeah. I think what's important here to recognize is that there is a multiplicity of views within the deaf and disabled community yeah, right yeah there's a multiplicity of views in the LGBTQ community among Muslims mm -hmm. you know I mean there yeah. were none of these are homogenous monoliths mm -hmm. right that's the most important mm -hmm. thing I think when people say the deaf but community also, or the disabled community these are people with widely different views sometimes mm -hmm. yes. and that's what editors need to understand yes. too but also it's like you know deaf people using um, being deaf as a metaphor is much different than you know a hearing person using it and in mm -hmm. terms of blindness as well if, if Giles wants to write all day long about the, the metaphors yeah, of, yeah, yeah, of yeah, blindness yeah. that's that's a very different situation than me doing it Absolutely. you know and yeah, yeah, yeah. I think because you're sighted yeah yeah I mean, one of yeah. the things that I've been reacting to a lot recently is that how much the news reports around Donald Trump uses uh -huh. Donald Trump as deaf too. Yeah. So it's an interesting use of word there. Yeah, he's got mental health issues or he's this or that instead of just being an oh evil. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Absolutely. And you say, <laughs> you know, like, I think that goes along with, you know, the use of disabled and deaf people in popular media as always being yeah. evil, as mm -hmm. always having some that kind is, of. Yeah. You know, it's always the blind person or the person who has a limp, who, you know, walks with a limp. A disfigurement. A disfigurement in, in some way that, and again, is justified, their existence is usually justified by like being in love with an able person or, you know, yeah. or, or, or being really accomplished in some way. So this idea of the super crit, yeah, quote unquote, absolutely. right, that has to, quote unquote, transcend their disability or their deafness and go beyond these yeah. challenges and sometimes I you know I see people who really use that sort of super curve narrative and yeah. I think yeah that is one of the um, biggest crumbles amongst the disabled community yeah. is when non-disabled people write characters and they haven't really bothered to get to know the sort of issues that people are dealing with and how they would reproach them and we see it in uh like the um, the TV series and the film Daredevil, where blind lawyer can hear a pin drop across the city of New York. <laughs> it's like you know, yeah, come on. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, I, yeah, we, that's, yeah we, don't, we don't want those kinds of stories. Oh They're not God. helpful. You know? yeah. <laughs> Your superpowers of smell, especially. Those are, those are big. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, yeah these are, back to publishing. These are the one, things that tend to get published, whereas right, yeah. disabled right. and deaf writers are not published. Right. And, yeah. and then, you know, we're still you know, carrying on the stereotypes. Right, or yeah. being... Or the assumption still stands that we can only write about our oh, quote-unquote differences. Mm. I mean, I personally have been like, oh, so do you write about being disabled? Mm. And I think, I can write about unicorns, I can write about, you know, anything <laughs> I want. Yeah. I mean, do we ask white men, do you write about being a white man? <laughs> I want to talk about the future. <laughs> Going ahead, how do the three of you see publishing and poetry considering everything that we have just discussed? Are you optimistic, pessimistic, somewhere in between? Anything else that you'd like to say as we wrap up? Recently, like there's been quite a changeover of editors mm -hmm. in quite a number of major magazines and literary journals, including the Poetry Review. And just a few weeks ago, uh, the New Yorker's poetry editor is now Terence Hayes, who mm. is an incredible poet, 
and you can't overlook the fact that it's a black man you know what i mean yeah so sancho said earlier about seeing a different set of people in positions of power we are seeing that but again we don't yet know if this is going to have a long-term impact or a long like is it just gonna be is it just the season is it diversity <laughs> season yeah. Oh God, yeah. yeah you know i know I, I think i'm optimistic generally because i think optimism keeps me going i don't pessimism doesn't feed me so well although i do think that some pessimism is healthy so it remains yeah. to be seen. What do you think? I mean, I think with all, all of the poets being published in these various publications that have been happening and that sort of thing, you've got more and more people contributing, so there's going to be more stuff. I mean, I don't know. Um, I think we need changes in how funding is happening yeah. in a lot of ways um, in terms of budgets for access. Um, there's often, in, at least in Scotland, there's like a section to fill out, well, what are you going to do for access? And everyone lies and mm -hmm. says they're going to do all these things for access and then they get the money and spend it on something else. Mm -hmm. There's not mm -hmm. actually a lot of people following up to make sure that people have the access they've promised. But also putting money into that and thinking about access. You mentioned somewhere near the beginning to do with um, touring. Disabled people and deaf people especially, I think, really need extra money when it comes to that. We need taxis a lot of the time. Oh, yes. There's like um, learning disabled people, autistic people who don't want to be maybe out in public transit, not all of them, but some of them. There's, you know, mobility issues, that sort of thing. Sometimes if we're going out of town, we need to stay an extra night because we'll be exhausted, like traveling from Scotland somewhere, performing, going back to Scotland. Like I've, I've been asked to do like eight hour journeys twice in one day. <laughs> like it's absurd, yeah. this kind of thing, you know, um, for any Anyone who's not disabled that's silly you know so factoring in those kinds of things and one of the my biggest pet peeves right now that I think people need to factor in is paying people back their money immediately like poets are asked to put out so much cash to like travel like here you know spend um, 200 pounds on a hotel for this night spend yeah. this like oh. 150 to take this and all your taxes will pay you back in three months mm -hmm. for me that often means I can't pay my rent if someone does that you know yeah. and it's really embarrassing to say that to a, to a publisher oh, by the way sorry but and it should just be a given that like we, we give you the money and a lot of the time they already have it it's just it's not happening and I think that's something that needs to to happen but in general I mean I do have optimism yes that I think there's a lot of people doing amazing stuff but I do think more of the work has to be taken on by non-disabled people by hearing people and not just in this way of like look at me I'm doing diversity um, which I think is sort of what you referred to Ray yeah I think a big part of that is also giving us the reins you know mm -hmm. like editorship and um, in terms of writing for the stage more directors and more producers who are actually, you know, so we can tell our own stories rather than other people's platforms will let you, you know, will slot you in for one thing or one show. Giles, do you have, what are your thoughts? I mean, my general mood is optimistic. <laughs> I think we're, we've made a good start, <laughs> but encouraging applications and submissions from these uh, minority groups is only part one. <laughs> you know, you need to at the publisher side, they need to reach out more to the group and say, look, we've got these opportunities we're looking for. Because, as I say, if you, if you Google blind, contemporary blind poet, you don't find any entries. So are publishers who are wanting mm -hmm. disabled contributors and blind people to submit to their 
publications saying to the RNIB, can you circulate this amongst your members that we are holding this this yes. publication? Yes. You know, mm -hmm. this need, is yeah, promotion. Yeah, mm -hmm. you know, we need to spread the word because most of the I, I bet there aren't many if there aren't that many people who are blind saying that they are a poet, then they probably don't know about these events. Education is so much a major part of knowing that something is out there. Mm. The number of people who are losing their sight that don't know about the kinds of technologies that I use every day mm -hmm. and would be immensely helpful for them. It just beggars belief, really. Um, but, I, you know, I think it goes, it's all about communicating this message and it involves the publishers as well as the people who are in the, the disabled groups. Thank you. I have two points to that. The first mm -hmm. is I feel like we should be paid as consultants for our work. And mm -hmm. actually, I have been a consultant in the past for arts organizations in terms of accessibility to varying degrees of follow-up, obviously. Yeah. And I thought th this should happen more often because so uh, the emotional labor that we spoke of it's for free you know like we do we advise people and we tell people our point of view and mm -hmm. we tell them how to yeah. be more inclusive and I mean, better I get and we're like not paid for it four emails a week at least somebody asking me free advice about how to yes. make something accessible and detailed free advice like yeah. and, and to recommend you have to say somebody who can do this no. or that or this yeah. and you have to yeah. say no often and yeah. tell them i want i need to be paid for my work initially yeah. some of my consulting stuff was like please give us free advice. And I said, here's my rate. You know, you have to start doing that. And the second thing that I want to speak about is disclosure. Because I feel as though it's everybody's right to disclose or not disclose however much detail you want about your body or what's going on in your life, right? Or how you identify as. I want to encourage people to really be comfortable with not disclosing also. So many writers... <laughs> Speak to, I know for me, and I'm sure for you as well, we'll come up to you and say, actually, I, you know, I'm also, I have a, I'm disabled too. I have this, or I have this problem. I'm also, and they can't disclose because they feel like it would affect their career. So I think that reducing the stigma yeah. associated with disability is great. And also the right to disclose or not disclose if you want. And yeah. that's something that's tricky. I agree with that entirely. I'm one who believes in, uh, identify my life's an open book <laughs> I'm happy to talk about my blindness and anything that relates to my health and I always say I am a blind poet I'm not a poet who happens to be blind you know I am a blind poet yeah. I want people to google blind poets and find that there are blind poets beyond Homer and Milton <laughs> you know? um, so I am proud of being blind I like the kind of person it's made me um, and I've just signed up you might probably a very masochistic challenge i'm doing a poetry marathon which is a uh, writing a poem every hour for 24 hours it, start, <gasps> it starts in about Ooh. two days wow <laughs> yeah Ooh, heart so, attack oh, I, I, I signed up for it and i introduced myself in the group and one lady says oh you're my new inspiration or my new hero because she's losing her sight mm. so i've had a good discussion with her off group about how being blind affects your writing so oh, you know fantastic. i like being able to share that kind of encouragement and saying you know it's the world isn't close to you if you lose your sight. You know? That's absolutely yeah. wonderful. And I hope yeah. that people use the word inspiration for you. Yeah. More, more, more. We have two more minutes ah. before we wrap up. Um, I definitely would like to just kind of co-sign uh, what you said about advisory. I, too, on a weekly basis, get emails very long mm -hmm. energy mm. and emotionally mm. consuming emails <laughs> yeah. from people saying please help us da, 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 with no mention of 
my time being worth anything to you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that these they, they mean well, but ju- yeah, I've recently got to the yeah. point of being like, look, like m- my time has to be worth something mm-hmm. here. Uh, that's so important because I'm gonna give you advice that you're gonna go along, you're gonna, you know, and hopefully it will be useful but then yeah. how yeah. It, it, it's so challenging because like you said, going back as well, we were talking about responsibility because if, if, if money meant nothing, it's like, yeah, have all of this advice for free. If it's going to make you a, um, a better, more engaged organization. Uh, yeah, but we um, have to pay our rent. <laughs> but we got to pay our rent, right? Uh, sure. Yeah. And, I, and, and actually I am giving something to your branding. Yes. Yeah. I am yeah. actually giving so you something that's going to help your brand. Yeah. And, and it's that. usually people who have a brand. You yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Because oh like if someone from the community asks me, that's an entirely different situation. Yeah. If they're like, hey, can you help me out? Do you know? That's I've not actually the same seen thing. a call um, for. Not that I can help everyone for free, but you know, yeah. you give advice. But like when someone has money, absolutely. Um, yeah. Um, just want to say that I've seen a call for you know to be an accessibility consultant, but we will only work with the minimum amount of budget possible. Yeah. To be yeah. Cost effective and it's yeah. like I told them you know that is not accessible some people yeah. need more yeah. things you know yeah. taxis and interpreters etc yeah. so just evolving that point of view from being cost effective to actually you know mm-hmm. this needs to be factored into yeah. the budget yeah and interpreters for social events that's something I wanted to mention today because people always hire interpreters um, just to do the event and leave mm-hmm. and then yeah. deaf people um, who use BSL have no chance to interact and such a big part of publishing is the sort of social part of things where you meet people and and they say hey I'm doing this magazine and blah 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 you know that sort of thing and you know making sure there's an extra half an hour hour there so people can talk to each other so something that I was reminded of I was actually I was in the States in New York I was in Baltimore in all of these different places including you know we were talking about Deaf Poets Society and I met some of the people uh, that run that magazine out in DC the main thing that these organizations have are patrons and philanthropists. You know, it's a very different setup for the arts in the States. And so much of it is philanthropy driven in a way that their advice to, to, to me, or I guess even to us, was yo, you need to find some patrons. <laughs> you need to find some rich people. Sugar get daddies. This, yeah. this whole podcast yeah. is going to end on sugar daddies, sugar mamas, sugar gender non binary people. We are here. We create art. We need to pay our rents. We want to be valued as human beings in a capitalist system. Please fund us. We're wonderful people. <laughs> and I would like to thank all of these. I mean, it has been such an honor and such a blast to be in the same room and talk to all of you. So thank you, Giles L. Turnbull and his father, John, who is here and silent, silent, silent observer. You did a great job raising Giles. And just, <laughs> I just want to say, dads don't hear that every day. Come on. Thank you. <laughs> Sandra Allen came all the way from Scotland. Raymond Antrobus. Um, wonderful. And David Turner, thank you so much for allowing us to hijack this podcast with some good vibes. <laughs> thank you all for listening. This has been Lunar Poetry Podcast.